Good morning, Liberty Lake Church. Why don't you all come in and join us? Hello to those of you online. We'll get started this morning. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 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 Blessed be the name of the
Okay. I was waiting for my cue. <laughs> it's time. You can have a seat. You're at Liberty Lake Community Church. Actually, Liberty Lake Church. You know, I'm an old guy. We like to do that. Uh, yeah. It's been the community church for, what, 91 years. And then you guys changed the name. Almost uh, as long as you. Almost as old as I am. That's right. Yes, indeed. You know, we're in tough times, and I just wanted to share a tidbit with you of encouragement. <clears throat> it takes one hour and 45 minutes for the average person to read the book of Job. One hour and 45 minutes. That's two Downton Abbeys. That's one and a half Desperate Housewives. I'm just saying, whatever you like to do, this takes an hour and 45 minutes. And the greatest, and I don't want to give you a spoiler alert, but... When you're concerned about politics and COVID and what's going to happen, and do I have to wear a mask, do I have to do this, do I have to do that, what are we supposed to do, blah, 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 blah. Job is an amazing book. That guy, he went through everything and anything. But this is a spoiler alert. In chapter 42, verse 5, he said, God, I have always heard you, but now I see you. And that is amazing. That is what James was trying to write. So, just an encouragement. You can, History Channel, the car auctions, whatever you like to do, turn it off and just start thumbing through Job. It's a great encouragement. Ladies Fellowship tomorrow night, Monday, April 12th. There's snacks. There's a tent. What's that? I don't want to bring snacks. Oh, I'm bringing snacks. Gary says, I'm... Okay. There'll be cubes of butter and a corn dog stick rolled in sugar. <laughs> okay. This is church. We're supposed to be serious here, you guys. They're building spring wreaths. Yeah. Well, I just learned what it was. Shane and I thought it was a pressure plate off of a manual transmission. <laughs> it's a plate with lots of springs. <laughs> Sign up in the foyer or let Julie know that you want to come and bring a snack. It's a great time for the ladies. Um, my bride goes. I know Lori goes. And she always comes home happy and excited and, and had a good time. Missionary packets, you probably saw Lori passing them out. If you didn't get one, yeah, make sure you get one before you leave the building. And I'm confident that if you forgot and you're trying to beat the Baptist to Kentucky Fried Chicken, you can come back this week and pick one up. So whatever you think, whatever you want, uh, grab that packet, learn those people, pray for them. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. They need our prayer support. 
uh, in the worst way. It's tough all over the place. And here's the greatest announcement of all, just a reminder. He is risen. Luke 24. That is the greatest story. After Jesus resurrected, after he was resurrected, he showed himself to two guys. What was the name of that city? Emmaus? Emmaus. And when he reached out to serve them, they saw the scars in his hands and knew he was Jesus, the Messiah. It's good stuff. And that's a fast read. Okay, we've got, uh, we're changing youth group from Sunday night to Wednesday night. And the schedule has changed. This is kind of a, what would you say, a summer uh, summertime schedule. Um, and it's going to be a blast. It's like once a month. So you need to get on um, the church website and watch it real close and see what's going. And I think the first one is Battle in the Pews. This Wednesday, Battle in the Pews. And it's a Nerf gun war. It, yeah, now we get to follow follow up on that. <laughs> well, as we start into the next, this next song, it's a bit of a poetical hymn that has a lot of archaic language. So I wanted to take a second and explain a couple of the words that we'll run into for those of us, the, the, particularly the younger, that may not have run around these words before. So we'll start with the easy one, melodious. The root of that is melody. So it sounds nice. Then Ebenezer. This has nothing to do with the Christmas carol. <laughs> Ebenezers are what the Israelites would put up when God had done something. They would stack rocks and say, this is somewhere where God has done something. And that was called an Ebenezer. And then the last one is fetter. Fetter is an old word for chains. So chaining our, chaining our heart to God is what that line talks about. You want to stand with us, and we'll just sing, Come Thou Fount. songs 
seated. Uh, one of the things that I love about Scripture is how uh, so many times it ties together with the things I'm planning or things that I'm, that I'm doing uh, and my personal Bible reading and then the fact that we're doing communion together uh, this morning. There's just a, a sweet harmony that's connected all of those dots for me today, and uh, you'll see that, I hope, in the sermon process uh, this morning. Uh, but we're coming to the Lord's table to be reminded about what Christ did, what He paid, uh, the price that He paid for our, uh, I love, even in the words of the text, prone to wander, uh, the, the picture of the Israelite uh, travel following of God, uh, and oftentimes it reflects that, uh, the very nature of our own hearts as well. And so as we come this morning, I want to encourage you to take a moment and to consider the, the words that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians very carefully. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 27, he says, For whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are, are, are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. As we prepare this morning, I want to really encourage you, as we'll, we'll see even in the, in the text of Jeremiah, God is calling out the nation of Israel and, and is challenging them with their, the condition of their heart. And I believe that we face the same challenge in our own lives as to evaluate our hearts and our actions against the Word of God and to take a few minutes and do that this morning as we prepare our hearts for communion. Uh, as soon as you get your uh, communion, uh, go ahead and take a seat, and we'll partake together at the end. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the blood that the cup represents, for your body that the bread represents, the, the payment of, of sin, the, the, the appeasing of the wrath of God that was represented in this moment that we celebrate together. I thank you, Father that you made a plan that, that actually addresses the issues of our hearts, the, the fact that we're prone to wander, the fact that we, um, for whatever reason, desire to worship everything but you as a people, as, as a human race. And so, God, would you do the work in our heart through your Holy Spirit this morning, convict us of the areas that we need to lay before you, to repent, to, to confess, and to come this morning to take 
communion together and celebrate this gift uh, with a right heart and with a right attitude, Lord. We just pray this in your name. Amen. So Paul passes on to uh, the Corinthian church what he received from the Lord in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take together. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I'm so grateful. The bread representing your physical body, the physical death that you suffered on this earth for me, for us, for for mankind, for your creation. And Lord, your blood that represents the new covenant that does what, what I am unable to do in following the law. It does what we as a people are unable to do in following the law. And through the blood of you, Lord Jesus, your Son, for Heavenly Father, we are we're made right. God, I pray this week as we engage your word, as we engage you and we engage others, that this reality and this truth would be overwhelming in our own hearts and in the realities of our own lives. Help us this not be just a monthly thing that we do. 
allow it to affect our daily living. Even how we see your word, how we address being in your word on a daily basis, how we address one another. Allow this truth, this proclamation of your death for the sins of the world to affect our daily living. In your name, amen. Stand with us. There's a place where mercy reigns and never dies. There's a place where streams of grace go deep and
God, let that be our prayer. Amen. Well, I've dismissed the kids, but I don't have any today. Wow. Got to be a good spring break. Yeah. Anybody ever tried to make a defense against their parents when they were wrong? Ever did that? Ever had your mom or your dad calling you on something and and you're like, "I'm innocent." I've done no wrong, and they're laying out the case before you, and you're just not smart enough to stop talking. Anybody ever been there? I was, I was going through the list of illustrations in my life, and I thought, who really wants to talk about that? I remember uh, one in particular that uh, I feel comfortable sharing with you. Um, it was, uh, I, I was going on a date, and I had some friends that worked at the place I worked, uh, and, and I would call them friends. My mom challenged my definition of friends in this particular indictment, and uh, I, was, again, I was asking a gal out on a date long before I met Sally. This was back when I was young and dumb. Well, and that's when I met Sally, too, but this was, <laughs> this was pre that, and uh I realized as I said that, I was like, that makes no sense at all. So anyway, uh, but I had this plan and, and these friends from this work environment, they were the ones that were going to, they were, uh, we were going to go on this double date and they had had this place that we should go. And I was a good church kid and invited a young church lady to go with me. And my mom was like, you, this is really dumb. This is not going to end well. It's really a bad idea. These people are not good influences in your life, and you need to be away from them. All of, some of you are nodding your head. You guys have heard this. You heard the same speech, huh? Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> You're just agreeing with me that I was young and dumb. I see what's happening. Um, and so my mom, she's like, "This is going to end poorly." And I'm like, "No, it's not. I, I know what I'm doing. Leave me alone. I'm going to go out and be like the world." And uh, so we went on this this date. I was going to say nice date, but it turned out to not be a nice date. It turned out to be a a, a, a party place with there was uh, they did lots of drinking and all this. And myself, my this young lady and I are sitting there as as young uh, kids in the one spot that was dead, you know, where you could eat and not have alcohol. The other place they had this one spot where the young people could be in. And I'm sitting there with this with this gal and the, this, these two people that were supposed to be friends of mine. And I could see on her face that this was not going well. And it did not. Surprisingly, she never called me back and never took another phone call from me. I hate it when my mom was right like that. You know, sometimes uh, I I think that when we think about church life, we tend to be less uh, prompt or or, 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 uh, quick to say that that we would respond that way to the Lord. And yet... um, my hope is as we go through uh, this process this morning that you will be encouraged, as I've been encouraged this week, to very carefully evaluate our hearts and our motives behind what we do. Uh, we're in Jeremiah chapter 2, and I'm going to attempt to do something, you guys, that I, haven't, I don't normally do. 
Um, we're going to actually attempt to do an entire chapter plus a couple of verses. I know. I, I spent, I really, I, yeah, we do, we don't, you guys don't have all day. I'm, <laughs> that's awesome. I apologize. I'm going to try and keep it in the normal time. But you know what, the, the problem that I have is I, I was running through the text. It was like, okay, so which verses do you grab? Like, which ones are, my, which ones are we going to just fly over? And I know that that's part of this process, so forgive me ahead of time. I'm going to struggle through this process. But I, I really feel like as, as I grew in the exercise this week, um, that the Lord brought a, just a couple of things that I think we're going to be very challenged by this morning. So join me today as I wrestle through this, and I'm, my hope is that you'll wrestle equally uh, with me as we go. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. And we're, we're just going to read the first 12 verses, and, and then we'll grab a, a few more uh, sporadically as we go through the rest of the text uh, this morning. You, we'll, we'll pick out pieces. But in the very beginning of this text, the Lord begins to lay out his case against Israel. And he, 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 it's, it's got very much a legal kind of format where he goes through and he actually he, he has a, an opening statement. And then he lays out some of the charges, and then in the in the remainder part, he actually brings up the fact that they are re, they're giving an answer. They're they're actually replying to his response or to his his accusations. And so you'll see that as we go through in a few of the verses. But let's start in Jeremiah chapter two, verse one. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, "Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem." Thus says the Lord, "I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride." How you followed me in the wilderness and in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear what the Lord, O house, uh, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went afar from me and went after worthlessness and became worthlessness? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from Egypt, the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, and in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that did not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. From the, from, uh, for, co- uh, cross to the coast of Cyprus and see or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. You can see in there as he begins the argument, uh, he, he actually lays out this in, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1, and three, uh, 1 through 3. He lays out this, this covenant relationship, and it's, it's this... It's, at best, a level of sarcasm, and, and you'll see that here in just a moment. But look what he says in verse two, uh, or chapter 2, verse 1. The, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, you, your love as a bride. 
how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. He describes this relationship, this early on devotion of their youth and how they, were, they had a love as a bride. And I love the fact that he actually uses the, the reference of bride here in this relationship uh, with Israel, partly because, you know, when I was growing up, I kind of thought every, all the references to, to Christ and the church and the bride and this, this covenant relationship, this relational covenant relationship was New Testament thought. I hadn't spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. I hadn't seen some of these pieces where the God the Father actually described his relationship with Israel in the same way that we see it described with our relationship with Jesus in this intimate relational relationship. In fact, the, the fact that it's this intimate relationship as a bride, as one lover of a bride, takes you all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 or chapter 3 when he sets up the marriage covenant that the two shall become one flesh and nothing will separate them. There's this amazing, intimate, relational context that he, that he says, this, I remember our relationship in the beginning. Were they devoted in the beginning? Remember the story of Exodus? Reams of documents about their devotion, right? As a youth, are, are we good at relationships as youth? No. That's why we got parents. And if you're blessed with siblings, some of you more than others, that's, what, that's the process. We don't, we're not good at relationships in, in our youth. And, and our devotion, my, my devotion as a youth was more along the lines of what was in it for me. And Israel has a similar relationship. In fact, it was a, a, one of those... Wonderful moments. I was doing my Bible reading this morning, and I'm in Joshua. Joshua, of all the books, to find something that pertained to the sermon this morning. So I told Julia, I said, sorry, I made a change. <laughs> so it's not in your bulletins, because I made a change last minute. Look in Joshua chapter 5, verse 6. This is referring to the devotion of the youth of, of the nation of Israel. Joshua chapter 5, verse 6. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness... Until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. They did not make it in. The entire nation that came out of Egypt, save Joshua and Caleb, died never seeing the promised land because of the devotion of their youth the faithfulness of their relationship with God in the beginning. Pretty strong indictment, I would say. We follow that up with the continued question in Joshua, or excuse me, Jeremiah. In verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of of Jacob and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Where did God fail Israel? What did, what did he do uh, that, that they would walk away from him? He asks that question of the nation of Israel. Is there wrong? Can you appoint something out that I have done as, a, as your loving God that is wrong? 
And I love how farther on in the text he actually, uh, he actually makes the comment um, that they did not ask. I, I love the point. He, he goes right to the leadership of, of the nation of Israel. In verse 6, he says, They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits? And he, he describes the, the, the severity of the place in which he took them and his provision through all of those things, how he protected them and brought them to the land of plenty, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And in verse 8, he begins, The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after worthless things. It's interesting that uh, one, of the, one of the things that you watch going through uh, the, the testimony of, of those in Scripture is that so often God leaves them in, in, their, in their sin. He, he, his presence is actually removed. And, um, we see that, that that's part of the question that he's crying out to the people of Israel. You didn't notice that I was gone. You didn't, cry, you, you didn't come saying, where's the Lord? Where is he? Interesting uh, connection to that is actually in Judges chapter 16. I was working on a, uh, our craftsman ministry uh, Lesson for the other day, and, and one of the connections in Samson's life really hit me like a ton of bricks this last week as I was preparing for that. It's in Judges chapter 16, and your bulletins, the number's wrong because I got that one wrong too. It's 1620. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles there, Judges 1620 says this. And, and again, you gotta, you, you'd be good to go back and read the whole story. You'll see Samson and Delilah and, and all of the things that are happening there, and she's trying to trick him into betraying his secret to his strength so that she could be trained to the, her Philistine lords that are there. So supposedly the love of his life, devoted youth, bride thing, all of that really faithful relationship stuff, and she's trying to, to trap him. And verse 20, we see the culmination of all of these things happening. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Previous to this, they had chained him up and had tied ropes on him. And, he, and when he woke up, he still had the strength. And he went out and he broke free of those bonds and, and he was safe. But this time, in his pride and in his own arrogance, he did not notice that all of his hair was shaved and that, he had, that the Lord had left him. And the following verses tell of the tragedy of his life and the results of that not recognizing the departure of the Lord. The Lord continues to make his case in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the foundation, or the, excuse me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The first thing that he, he, he holds against them is that they've forsaken him. The fountain of living water. The source of living water. They've forsaken this, this living God. Isn't it interesting that in uh, verse 12 you actually see, or, or excuse me, uh, verse 11, 
he actually he, he lays out how significantly uh, uh, horrible the decision of the Israelites are to walk away from him. He says, has a nation changed his God even though they are, no, they are no gods? But my people have changed their gods for that which does not profit. He actually t- tells the nation of Judah or Israel, go and look at the rest of the nations. They, they don't leave their gods even though they're not living gods. Those gods that they have do nothing for them, and that those people never leave their gods. But you, a people that have a living God, you walk away from that. You go and make your own. And he says that this is what you've done. You've forsaken me. And I love the fact that he uses this term living water. Again, it's another, uh, what I would have grown up thinking, well, that's something that Jesus would have said. It is something that Jesus said. In fact, it's an incredible picture of the relationship with the Lord. Look at John chapter 4, verse 10. He's talking to the woman at the well. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus continues and and actually explains this living water even more in John chapter 7, uh, verse 37. He says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, but Jesus was not yet glorified. The nation of Israel had the opportunity to be in relationship in the presence of a living God, and I believe that that's part of the, the, when we think about this living water, the, the, the reality of a living water indwelling us as believers today, uh, the picture is that we have access to God the Father. We have a relationship with Him present in us. And here the nation of Israel rejects that relationship with a living God, the fountain of living water, and instead actually goes out and hewns out cisterns for themselves. Jeremiah, uh, in chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. He says, As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. You've claimed that the tree and the rock are your God, your father. Instead of me, you've turned to these physical things, to earthly things. You're claiming that they are this. Do you see what he says? That they gave me birth. Literally, that they are our creators. The very person of God is interacting with them. In fact, I think it's later on in the text, he actually says that you, your swords have killed my prophets. Your swords have actually taken the word that I've given you, and you've put them to death. I love verse 28 because he actually says, well, Let your God save you then. You know, as I was wrestling with all of this process this week, and I'm thinking about, man, okay, so this accusation is serious. How how do we address that today? I mean, my, my angst in my own heart is that I think there's times where 
I become so comfortable with my Christianity. I take communion. I, 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 you know, I, I recognize that I have some sin issues and I have things that I struggle with. But I think at times I become very complacent to my relationship with the Lord and, and not seeing it as the vital thing that it, that it is. As God himself uh, is crying out against Israel saying, you're worshiping everything else but me. You're rejecting me for these physical things. I love Don's challenge this morning, right? Hour and 45 minutes. Who's on for Job this week? You know, you know, Ephesians, average reading time for the, for the whole book of Ephesians is 22 minutes. Doesn't seem like a lot of time, does it? It's amazing how important it is that we get in the Word of God, and yet how often is that something that we just set aside for other things? How many of us wake up late on a, on a work day and we're like, I gotta go, Lord, you're last. I mean, well, we don't say it that way. <laughs> that would not be... Christ-like at all. We're like, we'll get to you later. Which happens when? Sometimes way later for me. Have we made gods out of things that are not gods? Are we like Israel where we have actually begun to worship things that are not living, that are not God, that are not deserving of worship? I'm processing in my head how far I want to go with this right now because I don't like some of the, uh, some of the uh, possible implications. But if I look at where I set my time, the balance of time in my life, if, if you were to, vet, to say the amount of time spent equals the value in your life, God over here and, and other stuff, the amount of time that I've spent on other stuff in my life far exceeds that of the Lord, of time with the Lord. And I'm not saying, you guys, I get it. We, get, we all got to work. I'm not, I'm not talking about work stuff, because otherwise mine would look really good, right? That's just not fair. That doesn't work. You can't, you can't count that. I'm saying the quiet time. I'm saying the private stuff that we do. I'm saying the hobby living stuff we do outside of work. The things that we make time for beyond our daily work, beyond our family things. Where does God land in that process? In a, there was a season in my life where I was a, quite a, a decent video gamer. I'm, I'm still not bad. The, the young guys are still a little bit frustrated when I outscore them in some of the games, and my kids all kill me. But the, the reality is, is that if you looked at the time that I've committed to becoming good at a video game, and I'm going to say it that way, it's not always how I feel about it, because there's times I feel like I'm just unplugged from life and enjoying this. But if you really look at the amount of time I've spent becoming good at a video game, compared to the amount of time I've spent becoming deeply connected to my relationship with my God, there's a, a real disparity there. The, the best and worst thing that happens that the video game world has done is that they actually log your time. So you get to see in real time how, how many hours you've actually spent doing this. I wish our Bibles, wouldn't that be, oh, you guys, we could do that. We could have on the front of our Bible be like hours spent. It could be a digital thing. Wouldn't that be cool? You know what, what the worst part is? We'd all be a bunch of legalistic people and we'd have it open, sit next to us like this, watching some food channel or something. 
We'd be horrible at this. How much time do we spend in here, though? I think the, 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 the challenge is the conviction, you guys, is that Israel was walking with God. He was in a pillar of fire at night, a pillar of smoke during the day. The temple was in the, 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 the not the temple, the tabernacle was set up in the middle of their camp. He was present, he was physically present with them, and they still wandered. The challenge in my heart is that, is that not a serious temptation for us? We have the very presence of God indwelling in us, and yet how easy is it for me to become completely distracted by life things, completely uh, susceptible to sin, and to step into those things willingly? I think we need to really take a serious look at this and, and recognize the gift that we receive in the book of Jeremiah to actually see Israel struggling, to watch God address these things and then ultimately come and say, and just so you know, this time is up. Now, now the, the final chapter's coming and you're going into captivity. And here's, I think, one of the key reasons. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 33 through 35. He says, how well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirt is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in, yet in spite of all these things, you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. He literally tells them, you guys are doing this. You're evil. You're so good at evil that the wicked are coming to you to learn how to do this. You're so good at sinning. At some level, isn't that what it looks like when we as Christians read the word of God and we see him say, hey, thus you shall not do. And we're like, that's good for everybody else, but I'm going to do it. Is that not the same as the nation of Israel rejecting God and choosing idolatry over worship of God? Is, that, is it not the same? as Are we not being the same church that, or the same people of God who are leading, teaching the world how to be sinners? And in the midst of all this, he lays out his whole course and they say, and the people go, not us, we're good. He goes, the blood of the innocent people you're killing is on your robes. Nah, <laughs> we're good, Lord. No, no sin here. Literally, they say, we have done no wrong. I am innocent. I think that uh, as I was wrestling with this this week, just asking the Lord to convict me. God, where am I at? Where, where do I need to learn from this? I think so often... Um, especially in the American church, especially, I think, uh, we are so good at being isolated and separated. And, and I, you guys, I, this is such a cool thing. I just realized it the other day. I can actually now drive up into my car, hit my garage door, have it go up, drive in and close my garage door and not have to see anybody before I get into the house. I did not know what that was like in my life. I always had to park outside and walk in. That walk of shame, you know. I'm kidding. That's a joke. 
But the reality is, is that I can actually enter my home and be locked away from people and never have to see one of my neighbors now. Never have to be present to see anybody. Our culture has us in a spot where we can be on a video screen claiming to be in relationship with people. Now, I get it. It works for certain things. But when you watch those commercials and those grandpas reading cards and, and having grandkids blowing out cakes, acting like somehow that's as meaningful as having them present, it's a lie. That's not a relationship. That's not true relationship. And yet there's a part of me as a believer that watches what's going on in this world and goes, actually, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I see my sin. I've got an anger issue. I've got, I've got these things I need to dr- dr- you know, deal with. I've got driving issues. I've got, all, I've got a, a good number of issues. They actually present pretty well at church. I'm doing good. And it's very, very easy, I believe, for us as American Christians to start actually thinking that somehow we've arrived. Somehow the gospel isn't necessary for us anymore. We're not really needing the living. We've got it. We've got the Holy Spirit. We're good. And we stop being very, very careful to hear the word of the Lord when it is confronting sin in our own lives. The nation of Israel stands before God going into correction, going into discipline, claiming we've done no wrong, we're innocent. I love what Paul says about this, right? Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's the point? The gospel's present and it's active today. It's necessary today. God, I believe, is offering living water still today as he was to the nation of Israel, different in the person of Christ than what they had at that point in time. But still, it's the same relationship. It's the same, it's the same personal God reaching out to his creation with the hope that his people would respond to his word and actually live in a way that reflects his glory to all nations. And it starts with you and it starts with me. Now, I love how Paul finishes up in Romans chapter 8, and we're going we're gonna to land there today because it specifically references the work of the Spirit in our lives, and I want you to see this, and hopefully you'll be encouraged as I was encouraged this week to wrestle with this truth in light of who I am, in light of what I'm dealing with in my own life, in light of the truth about the heart of Shane, like we talked about in communion this morning, rightfully judging the actions and motives of my own heart. And I'm not good at it, you guys. Just so you know, I think pretty highly of myself. I'm not good at evaluating my own sin. I'm really not. I'm way better at getting off the hook. I'm better at making, making excuses and justifying my behavior. I'm angry at that guy because he drives like that. If he would just think about other people, then I wouldn't have to be angry right now. Yeah, tell me you, some of you haven't thought that way. We are good at justifying our own sin. I'm not as good at pursuing the heart of the Lord. I'm just not. I want to be. I desperately want to be. I want that to be the first response. I would like my first response when life goes south to say, Lord, what do you want? What do you want me to do? What are you thinking? Tell me. I'm gl- I'd love to hear it. I want that to be my, re- my first response. 
Look at what Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8, and, and I wanted to do this partly because we do live in the truth of the gospel, which there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's, that's such an amazing truth. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law was weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who has raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Paul's describing this spiritual life and this flesh life and how the indwelling presence of the Spirit actually is empowering us to be engaged in this pursuit of following Him, of, of setting our minds on the things of the Spirit, on the things of God. But if they're not, if we're consumed by the things of this earth, if we're consumed by, by the worldly things or the empty cisterns like Israel continued to seem to do, they were always going back to the things of the world. They really were worried about being like everybody else. And their worship was that of everybody else, even though it was trees and stones. The question I've been asking myself this week is, is my, am I set... Have I set my mind on the things of the Spirit, or am I set on the things of this world? <laughs> I had a goofy test this week. We got our HOA uh, letter saying, hey, please let us know about anything you want to do on your property. We'll tell you if you can. I ought to tell you what. There's a part of me that just like, Hair went up on the back of my head, and I'm like, watch what happens when you make the red, the little white man angry. They call me, I'm my, one of my nicknames is Albino Smurf. Um, I have no idea where that came from, but uh, partly because my head just turns bright red, I guess, when I get frustrated with life. Or really embarrassed because I do something stupid. That's another thing. If you see that happen, you'll know I'm embarrassed too. But man, I got to tell you, I, I, I just really set me the wrong way. Why? By golly, it's my property. I'll do whatever I want. Yeah, you can tell I'm still dealing with my attitude. What happens with that? Is that not an issue of earth? Is that not an earthly thing? Absolutely. I knew there was an HOA. I didn't realize they were communists, but I knew it was an HOA. I had no idea how, I didn't know what they were going to ask me. I have to tell them what size plants I'm going to put in the backyard. 
I don't even know what I'm putting in the backyard. How am I going to have a plan for that yet? Anyway, the point being, one little moment, and all of a sudden my heart's turned, and I'm, I'm back on earth struggling with earthly things. Not praying for my neighbors that need the Lord at that moment. I'm angry about an, an HOA. I'm not worried about how much time I've spent in the Word. I'm worried about somebody telling me what I can put in my backyard. How much of our lives are spent consumed by the earthly momentary things that, that are not honoring to the Lord, that don't actually deserve that much worship? They don't deserve that much of our time. You guys know I don't wash my car every day. I don't. I know. You're thinking, wow, that young man is so humble. No, I'm lazy. I don't care that much about that car. I love the car. But I could be consumed by that thing. Very easily, I could be consumed by that car. It's got dents and scratches and dings, and we live, we use it. But I could easily be consumed by that. What is it in this life? My my dad and I were talking about this uh, before they took off, uh, and, and he's wrestling with the fact that one of his, he's really passionate about political things right now. And we, he's been, we've been wrestling with this, and he's been asking me, he goes, how do I balance this out? And I, I, my, I was being snarky, and I just said, well, give as much time to that as you do to reading the Word. However many, how many hours you spend online reading on, on news articles about polit- political things or his, whatever the issues are that you're wrestling with, Put that much time into reading the Bible. That would solve it, I bet. I'm guessing. Um, I haven't actually exercised that in my own life yet, but I'm thinking about it. <laughs> Truth be told. Sounds like a great policy for everybody else, though. <laughs> Isn't that horrible? But man, if we evaluated our lives, what is it that's consuming us? Where are we putting all of our energy and our time? Israel's focus was always on the external. They were always focused on everything other than God. They they sought after and worshipped evil and idolatry. That was the whole point. There's a whole section in there that talks about them being like a wild donkey. It was out actually looking for mischief. They were constantly pursuing other things instead of the worship of God. And at some level, I feel like that is us as a church. We, are so, we have so many other things to pursue. We have so many other things to give our time to. But I just wonder how, how much effort, how much focus we have given to the Lord to say, God, what do you want today? How would you use me today to further your kingdom? How would you use me today to bring glory to your name? What would it look like? If I were to care more about you today in my neighborhood than about me. It's been a rough week. But you can't imagine going, ah, how do you live like this? I don't like these people yet. I don't even know them. Do I really want to spend that much time getting to know them? You guys do know they're messy, right? I mean, we're the only perfect people in this area. The rest of them are a mess. They take time. I'm being sarcastic. It's my heart. My desire is that I would serve the Lord, that He would be the primary focus of my relationships, that He'd be the primary focus of my worship. And I'm in conflict because I know it's not. And I, I have days where I do, and there's days where I don't. 
And it's a real challenge for me. And I think when we see Israel, when we watch what God does with the nation of Israel through Jeremiah, we watch how persistently they pursue evil, how constantly they reject the word of the Lord. It should be a warning to us. It should be an encouragement to us to, to change that direction, to be sure that that's not the hearts that we are following God with. If there's anything that we learn as we walk through the Old Testament, it's that the, the heart of man is prone to wander. It, that song is so incredibly appropriate. Prone to wander, Lord, I know it. I feel it. It's, it's, it just, it's lingering in me. And yet we're called to be his children. We're called to follow and obey. So challenge, hopefully given. Let's wrestle this week with our lives. What, what are we committing our time to? What are we worshiping this week? Is it God? Does he own that time in our life? Does he actually have the priority? Or is he merely just the thing that we keep around in case things get bad and we can look at him and say, hey, things aren't going so well, Lord, help save us. Hey, Israel did that in, in, in verse 13 and 14. God references it. He goes, yeah, they asked me to save them after they've sought out as much evil as possible. In fact, the very end of this, the very end of the passage And Jeremiah, it's absolutely incredible. Verse 37 of Jeremiah chapter 2, Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. And as you can... Oh, wait, I'm in the wrong... I have no idea. That was chapter 31. Brothers and sisters, my glasses are obviously dirty. That was a great verse. Wow. Who knew that we needed that? I'm going to have to go back and change my notes. Uh, Chapter 3, there we go. Chapter 3, verse 5. This is Israel's response. He says, "Will." They're saying, will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil you could do. The indictment that the Lord finishes with the nation of Israel is you've done everything evil possible. You have done it all. There's nothing, there is no more evil that you could do, and so I am acting now. Father, I pray that that would not be the heart of us as a church, as your church, Lord, that we, your people, would not hear the word of the Lord, and we would not see what you're challenging us to do in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the character and nature of who you are, and that our response would be, I have done no wrong, I'm innocent, and that we would ignore, Father, the the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that it lays upon our hearts the times where where we are not in relationship with you, where we have rejected you, where we have ignored you, or we have worshiped something else. Father, I pray that you would over, overwhelm our hearts with that reality, with that truth. If, if we are not hearing from your Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would awaken us, convict us of our sin, whatever it takes to open our eyes to that reality. And as a faithful, good Father draws back to you. God, I pray as a church, you would not allow us to get to the point where we don't know that you've left not in my personal life, not in our corporate life. God, we need your help to protect us from from the, the 
wandering nature of our hearts. So do as you see fit, Lord, to take all the glory and do the work that you would do to change and soften our hearts and to conform us into the image that you have designed us to be through your perfect foreknown knowledge and will as the one true creator, God. We will not claim that stones gave us birth or trees are our father. God, we want to follow you. Help us and convict us when we're not and lead us, Lord, in a way that only gives glory to you in your name. Amen.
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Have a good week.